0: Heavenly Father, we, I pray that that is not just lyrics that we sing, but that that is the anthem of our life, that you, you are good. You are a good, loving Father. But Father, I know that that is, I know from my own life, that that can be very difficult to believe and very difficult to receive at times. We get that call from the doctor that we don't know what to do. Money is tight, family, relationships are strained, work is a mess, our spirit is sleeping. It it just, that is the reality in which we live, but the bigger reality, the overriding reality is your love and your grace and your mercy and your presence and your power and your providence that you are bigger and you are better all of the challenges and all of the problems that we face. So Father, I know that there are people in here today that are questioning, that are seeking, that are searching. Maybe they've been hurt by the church before. Maybe they've had prayers go unanswered. Father, no one needs to hear from me today. All of us, myself included, we need to hear from you. And you want to speak to us, your children. So would your spirit do just that through your preached word today? Move in a way that only you can. For the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning. My name is David. For those who I haven't met yet, welcome. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. I forgot to tell the first service that yesterday I started a juice cleanse. (laughs) And so there's a lot of fire and brimstone in here. (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. Not about the juice cleanse, though. But don't add me to your prayer list, because at the end of the week, I'll be in Texas where I plan to eat my weight in brisket. So... Our God is a God of redemption. <laughs> All right, so we are in week four of our sermon series called Great is His Faithfulness, in which we're studying and learning from and applying to our lives the lessons from the Lord's covenants made throughout the generations, culminating, of course, with the everlasting covenant made in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new to Christianity or maybe you're, this is your first time back to church in a long time. The word covenant might not be something that you're familiar with. It certainly isn't a word that we use often in our everyday lives. We're much more familiar with the term contract, right? A a mortgage contract, a lease contract, an employment contract. And a contract, as we know, is an exchange of conditional promises, right? I do this, you do that. If you don't do that, I can do this. A covenant is like a contract But at the heart of it is not an exchange of promises, but an exchange of persons. So it's not conditional promises, but unconditional love that is at the core of a covenant. So how does this all circle back to God? Well, throughout history, as we said, the God of the universe, the only one living and true God, he made covenants with his people. He made covenants with Jacob and Abraham and Isaac And that's what we've been studying over and over and over again, culminating with the everlasting one through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God did not just give himself to us, but he gave himself for us. And so let's answer a valid question about the Bible through the lens of God's covenants. Question, there are 39 books in the Old Testament, spanning at least... 3,000 years, why isn't there an entire chapter devoted to dinosaurs? Socrates, one of history's most important thinkers, was alive during the time of Old Testament writings. Why isn't he mentioned at all? Where are the pyramids? Where's King Tut? Where is all of that? The answer, the Bible is not a history book. It is a love story. It begins with the love of God overflowing into creation and his relationship with man and woman. But mankind is tempted, as we know, by Satan, and Adam and Eve sin against God, the penalty for which should have been death. Instead, God pursues them in the garden. He finds them in their shame and guilt, both of them pointing the finger, and God clothes them with the skin of an animal, Of course, foreshadowing the death of Jesus, clothing us in his righteousness. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God declares a holy war against Satan. God says that through Eve would come the one that would crush Satan. And the rest of the Old Testament is a march throughout history until we get to the one, Jesus, who would crush the head of Satan and rescue mankind, bringing all who believe back into relationship with the Father. And so why are Adam and Eve in the Bible? Well, among many other reasons, because they point to Jesus. Why is Noah in the Bible? Because he points to Jesus. Why is Abraham in the Bible? Because he points to Jesus. And why are we going to study Jacob today and God's covenant renewal with him? Because Jacob and this story all point to Jesus. Ever wonder why the first page of the New Testament is a genealogy of Jesus? Because Matthew insists on showing us that God worked throughout history to bring about salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And guess who was mentioned the third person in that lineage, Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. So we know why Jacob is in the Old Testament, but other than pointing to Jesus, why do we care? Why study Jacob and not, not just jump to Jesus? Well, I think that Jacob's life demonstrates four things about the character and nature of God, which are as true today as they were back then, and are as much for us as they were for Jacob. Number one, God's love pursues. Number two, God's grace restores. Number three, God's presence revives. And number four, God's promises stand. So let's dig in. Our main text today is gonna be Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. You can follow along, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you, you can join me on page 22 again of the the Bible, the the, the verses will also be up on the screen as well. It feels like we're going to sort of dive bomb or parachute into Jacob's life, and it feels that way because we are, but we're going to do a little bit of work after this to to dig it out and set the stage for what we're going to look at today. So Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, I know it says, if God, a better translation of that is, since God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as I said, we need to hear your voice today. We, We need to see the gospel in the life of Jacob. But Father, my prayer is that we, it's so tempting as we go through the Old Testament to And even the New Testament, to think of ourselves outside of this biblical narrative, outside of your grand redemption story. But we are not. We are not only recipients of it, but we are participants in it, ambassadors for your kingdom, armed with your Holy Spirit, bringing love and grace and good news to those around us. And so, Father, would your Spirit speak loudly to each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now I don't know about you guys, but the further I get into the book of Genesis, the further I get into Exodus and then Leviticus and Numbers, it is really easy for me to forget who is who and what is what. So let's orient ourselves a bit and remember that this is God's march throughout history bringing about his rescue and redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. Now, no one really gets lost with Adam and Eve, right? That's like right out of the gate. Then you have their children, Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 5, we get this genealogy of Abraham, of Adam's descendants, rather, all the way to Noah. Genesis 6 gives us Noah and the flood, a story many of us know. 9 and 10 give us the descendants of Noah. 11 gives us the descendants of Shem, Noah's son. Genesis 12 gives us the descendants of Terah, Shem's son. One of Terah's sons was Abram, later renamed by God Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Many know the story of Abraham and Isaac. And the Lord blessed Isaac and his wife, Rebekah with twins, Jacob and Esau. So that's how we get here, From there, as God continues to march throughout history. And again, this is all God bringing about his promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent. So you almost have to imagine sirens going off in hell every single time a baby boy is born, which puts a new spin on Cain killing Abel, and God using Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren, to bring about Isaac, and God using Rebekah, Isaac's wife, who was barren, to bring about Jacob, and remind me again, what did Pharaoh command happen to all the boys born of a Hebrew woman? They'd be killed. And remind me again, what did Herod command happen to all the boys aged two and under when Jesus was born? Killed. Right? There's this whole holy war going on behind all of this. But where we are, Jacob is next in line, provided by God and chosen by God to eventually deliver Jesus. Now, if you know the story, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, has a really rough pregnancy. Jacob and Esau were literally at war in her womb. She brings it before the Lord, and the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This is 100% against the way that that culture treated an older sibling. The younger served the older. And to further cause strife between them, we're told that as they grow up, Esau becomes this skillful hunter, and Jacob stayed home among the tents. Jacob, like, this is my opinion. Take it, leave it. He's painted as like a mama's boy in this. Like, that's just how it is. Isaac, his father, has this taste for wild game. And so he loves Esau, but Rebekah loves Jacob, who stays at home among the tents. Jacob's name in Hebrew means supplanter or one who wrongfully takes what is not his. And this plays out in a very dramatic way in Jacob's life. Scripture says that one day Jacob is among the tents, cooking stew, and his brother comes in starving from hunting, and I mean starving. And seeing an opportunity to take what isn't his, Jacob tells Esau to give him his birthright in exchange for some soup. Now Esau, being the firstborn, was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. He would become the head of the family, very powerful. So this was not a small ask. And Esau says, look, what what good is my birthright if I'm about to die? And so he gives it to him in exchange for food. And from that moment on, Esau despises his birthright and his brother. Then when Isaac, their father, is about to pass away, he asks Esau to go out one last time and bring your father back some wild game that I may eat it and bless you. Rebekah, the mom, overhears this And she has Jacob deceive Isaac into blessing him instead. Esau returns and he and the dying Isaac figure out Jacob's deceit. But at that point, it's too late. So Esau laments, the days of mourning my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. Rebekah overhears that and warns Jacob who flees to go live with his uncle. And that is where we pick up the story In Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. This is a 500-mile journey. So at this point, Jacob has manipulated, he has stolen, he has lied, he has cheated, and he has run out of town with literally nothing. Not even a backpack to lay his head on. Verse 11, taking one of the stones there, He put it under his head and lay down to sleep. If you have ever tried to run from your problems, if you have ever tried to run from your fears, if you have ever tried to run from the pain, from the shame, from the guilt, if you've ever made a decision or decisions that have compromised integrity, if you've ever been in such a tight spot that the softest thing around you still feels like a rock against your head, if you've ever been alone, if you've ever been in complete darkness, if you've ever felt like the walls were closing in, if you've ever hit rock bottom, you know how Jacob felt in this moment. And when he hit rock bottom, he discovered the one thing he could not outrun, God's love. He wasn't looking for it, but God's love pursued him. He wasn't asking for it, but God's love pursued him. He didn't know he needed it, but God's love pursued him. He didn't deserve it, but God's love pursued him. And he had nothing to offer in exchange for it, but God's love pursued him. God's love pursued Jacob, not to a certain place geographically, but a certain place spiritually. In other words, when Jacob got to the end of himself, there he found God. And this is good news on another magnitude, because there is a stark difference between running from problems and running to God. I can't count the number of times I have run from my problems, but not the Lord, not to the Lord. Jacob was not running to the Lord. He was running from his problems. But he could not outrun the love of God. And neither could I and neither can you. If you're going through it, if you're in it, if you've reached rock bottom, if your well is empty, this is when God's light will shine the brightest and his love the warmest. Jacob did not meet God there. God met Jacob there. And he met Jacob, not with condemnation, not with condemnation that casts out, but with grace that restores. Now, let's first recognize the fact that the Lord came to Jacob at a point in his life when Jacob had never been further from God, ever. And at this point, Jacob's at least 40 years old. And this means, not counting some sleepless nights, that Jacob had fallen asleep 14,600 times. So why that dream with that message on this night? Because God will take you to a place that you wouldn't go to do a work in you that you couldn't do. God will take take you somewhere you won't go to do a work in you you can't do. Jacob had never been further from his family, never been further from his people. He's never been further from God. But our God is a God of restoration. Our God heals wounds. He restores relationships. He mends families. He silences fear. He lights up the darkness. He pardons iniquities and forgives transgressions. And he meets us in our mess with the only thing strong enough to restore us. His grace. What did Jacob deserve here? Punishment, condemnation, all the above. What did he get? Well, let's look again at Scripture, verses 13, 14, and 15. And I'm gonna give you the scripture, and then I'm gonna give you the new Anastasi translation. The Nat. Verse 13. Scripture, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Translation, do not forget that who I am determines and defines whose you are. Scripture, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south, all people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Translation, even though you forgot the covenant that I made with your grandfather Abraham and your father Isaac, I did not. Scripture, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised. Translation, do not believe the lie that you are a bad enough sinner to outsin my good grace. How many times do we forget who we are and whose we are? How many times do we forget the promises of God? How many times do we think that we are too far gone? Well, if we forget that a thousand times, because of the shed blood of Jesus, God's grace will restore us a thousand and one. And look at what happens when Jacob is met with God's love and he's restored by God's grace. He is revived by God's presence. Verses 16, 17, and 18. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar. And he poured oil On top of it. Now, scripture to this point has made no mention whatsoever of Jacob's acknowledgement, belief, or receipt in God's covenantal love. None. Zero. But when he is met with God's love and restored by God's grace, his spirit is revived to life, and that which represents the toughest spot he had been in. The stone under his head becomes a literal beacon and pillar of God's presence. All of his bad decisions, all of the lying, all of the cheating, all of the manipulation, all of the deceit, all of the running. Verse 18 Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil. On top of it, it is only when we recognize and remember and receive what God has for us that we see our trials and tribulations as gateways to heaven. And Jacob didn't just wake up from a dream. He woke up from a spiritual slumber. He woke up from his evil ways. He woke up from blaming others. He woke up to a full awareness of God's love for him, God's grace towards him, God's presence with him, and God's purpose through him. Which brings me to my final point. God's promises stand. You talk and you study, you preach and teach about God's love and his grace and his his presence, and they are all just mind-blowing. There's no doubt. But this is the one that got me this week. When Jacob falls asleep, scripture says that he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Everybody say on it. it. Now many, myself included, know this as Jacob's ladder, right? Are you familiar with Jacob's ladder? You've heard of it before? But that's not a good translation. The NIV gets it right when it calls it a stairway. In the ancient world, people would construct a temple-like structure with a stairway built into the side of it. And this structure would be flat on top, and, and there, leaders of the people would make sacrifices to the gods that they worshipped. The stairway that was carved into the side was called a ziggurat. It looked very much like that. They were trying to get as high as they could, as close to heaven as possible. And this ziggurat is exactly what Jacob sees. Angels moving up and down from heaven to earth, carrying out the will and the work of God. And so Jacob sees for the first time the divine reality that, as the song says, even when we can't feel it, even when we don't see it, even when it doesn't seem like it, God is working. Amen? But there's more to it. We've been talking about God's promise. God's covenant with Abram that he reiterates with Isaac and he reaffirms here with Jacob. That God will cover the earth with a people of faith, his descendants, his children, children of God, if you will. But the promise we've only touched on up until this point is the first promise that God ever made. Remember, the first promise God ever made was not with Abraham. It was not even with mankind, it was with Satan. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God promises to crush the power and the penalty and eventually the presence of sin all through the offspring of the woman from whom came Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and eventually Jesus. So how does this come back to this story of this stairway, this ziggurat? Well, fast forward 1,800 years. When Jesus begins his ministry, he calls followers to himself. He calls Andrew, he calls Peter, he calls John, and others. And after Jesus calls Philip, Philip finds, finds his buddy Nathaniel and he tells him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about, that the prophets spoke about. We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel is in complete disbelief. He actually says to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Philip takes him to meet Jesus. And then we get this. Jesus says, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Truly, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Before giving Jacob his love and his grace and his presence, Why didn't God make Jacob climb the stairway and go as high as he could and make a sacrifice to God? Because Jesus is the stairway. Because it is not us who climbed to heaven from earth, but Jesus who left heaven and descended to earth. Because it is not us who climb up as high as we can, but Jesus who was brought low. It is not us who make sacrifices to please God, but Jesus who not only made the sacrifice for our sins, but was the sacrifice for our sins. We don't climb a stairway of works because Jesus climbed a cross of obedience. And it is through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that the lost are found. The sinful are forgiven. Children are restored. God's plan and his purpose is fulfilled. The dead come to life, and our trials are turned into triumphs. He is the stairway. When the enemy wants you to run from your past, remember, God's love pursued you. When the enemy wants to define you by your failures... Remember, God's grace restored you. When the enemy wants you to sleepwalk through life, God's presence will revive you. And when the enemy wants you to rest on your problems, stand on God's promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see through the life of Jacob how your love pursued him how he could not outrun your love, no matter how far he went, no matter how low he went, he could not outrun your love and your mercy. Father, that is not just true for Jacob. That is true for me, and that is true for everyone in this room. Father, this story of Jacob shows us that your grace restored Jacob. It met him right where it where he was, in his pain, in his suffering, in his trials, in his confusion, laying on a stone. Father, your grace restored him. It brought him back into who you've called him to be. Father, that is not just true of Jacob. That is true of me. That is true of everyone in this room. Your grace will meet us right where we are at and it will restore us. Father, we see in the life of Jacob that you have this amazing, amazing plan, but you had to wake him up spiritually from the slumber that he was in, and your spirit, your presence did just that because you don't want to just see a revival in one of us 4,000 years ago. You want to see a revival in all of us today. And Father, can we not see through the person and work of Jesus Christ that your promises stand? Nothing can thwart them. Nothing can stop them. Your promises are true. Your word is valid. And it never returns void. And so Father, would you by the power of your Holy Spirit convict our hearts to receive your love Receive your grace to be revived by your spirit and to stand on your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.